desire to go to Exodus chapter 12 at some point as well. title of the message this morning is Praying for and Protecting His Own. Praying for and Protecting His Own as we consider John chapter 17 once again. <clears throat> and our main focus this morning is the particular redemption and the perseverance of the saints. John 17. There's no doubt that Jesus at time prayed for his enemies, right? And there's times that we are to pray for our enemies as well. For while hanging on the cross, Jesus said of his enemies, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Can you imagine? As Jesus was dying for sinners, as Jesus was dying for his people, he says, Father, forgive them those who were there doing what they were doing, crucifying him, for they do not know what they are doing. But between that prayer and any prayer that's, that's similar to it, and the prayer in John 17, there is a vast gap, a significant difference. For in John 17, Jesus' prayer is for his people and his people only, the people for whom Christ died. And we find this, we find a stark contrast in verse 9 and 10. Let's just look at that briefly. For those whom Christ died for and the world. Look at verse 9 of 17. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. It cannot be any more clear to us. And in verse 10, and these things that are mine are yours and yours are mine and I have been glorified in them. In the um, 19 or 1650 classic, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ by John Owen, and that's only the partial title of it, he pointed out that the priestly ministry of Israel required not one but two essential tasks. First, an offering was made in blood to satisfy God's justice for sin. Second, intercession was made to God on the basis of that sacrifice. John Owen writes, to offer and to intercede, to sacrifice and to pray are both acts of the same sacerdotal sacrifice or sacerdotal office and both required in him who is a priest. The Christian hope of salvation therefore rests on both Christ's dying and Christ's praying. So those whom Christ prayed for are those who Christ died for. And those who Christ died for is those who Christ prays for in John chapter 17. Jesus came as a priest for his people. He is indeed our high priest. And he came to die and to make intercession for his people. As Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 tells us. Therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
the high priestly prayer that we have here before us in John 17. The heart of it being verse 9 through 13 is where we will be this morning. This is really the introduction of the eternal priestly intercession offered by the Lord Jesus Christ based on his atoning sacrifice, his atoning death, the once for all sacrifice. John Flavel, one of my favorite Puritans, says, in this prayer, he gives them a specimen or a sample of that his glorious intercession work, which he was just then going to perform in heaven for them. The question we ask once again is, who does Christ pray for? And the other question is, who does Jesus die for particularly? First, we see in verse 1 through 5, Jesus prayed for himself. Again, let's read that. Follow along with me. In verse 1, Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all who, who you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ in whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men who you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And then in verse 7 through 19, we won't read all of that this morning, he prays specifically for his disciples and by um, way of application that is for us as well. And for all of his people he prays for, particularly uh, in verse 20 and following through that. And Jesus prays for their sanctification, for their protection, for their perseverance, and for their unity. Now, we will begin in uh, verse 9 and our first point after asking the Lord for prayer for help. Lord, indeed, I come before you once again and ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to ask for accuracy according to your word. And I pray, God, that you would give ears to hear this morning hearts that are so soft in your hands for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Very simply, our point this morning, first point, praying for his people, praying for his people. I ask on their behalf, Jesus says. I do not ask on behalf of the world. Okay, we can understand that. We can see the contrast there, who he's praying for. But of those who you have given me, for they are yours. So Jesus prays for a particular people here, not on behalf of the world. For those who belong to the Father, given to the Son. Jesus, the high priest, praying for, interceding for a particular people. You're going to get sick of the word particular today, okay? But I wanted to screw that into your mind. Specific focus right here in verse 9 are the disciples. The author, author of Hebrews writes about our great high priest, Jesus Christ. And here in John 17 we see a glimpse of that office Jesus would undertake. Jesus, the high priest, 
exercises his priestly ministry for a people, not all people. A people, not all people. His atoning sacrifice, likewise, is particular, not general. Who did Christ go to that cross for? For his people. For those who would come to him in faith and repentance. Who was the sacrifice for? Whose wrath did he absorb? The Father's wrath. For whom? These are the questions we must, we must seek to answer. Priestly offers, uh, excuse me, priestly offering and priestly intercession performed together. Christ's atoning death is for a particular people, and his intercession is for a particular people. I like the word particular better than limited. When we think of particular atonement, I like that better than limited atonement. Limited sounds very limited, doesn't it? Right? It gets us the wrong idea. As soon as people hear that, they're like, oh, you're limiting Christ right now. No, we are not. We're saying, what does the Bible teach us? And then we're using terms to help us understand it. Richard Phillips says, Christ intercedes as priest before God to effect salvation only for those who belong to him, dying to atone for their sins and then sending the Spirit to open their hearts to saving faith. Particular redemption or definite atonement is better phrases, better terms, in my opinion, than limited atonement. Christ paid for the sins of his people particularly. The power of his redemption is not limited, but fully effective and applied to a particular people. You see the difference? It's not limited. The power of his redemption is fully effective and fully applied to a particular people. The elect, also known as the people of God, also known as those who are uh, effectually called, those who are regenerated, those who are born again, those who come to Christ in faith and repentance. Salvation is offered to the whole world. That's why we go out and proclaim the gospel. That's why uh, the Apostle Paul proclaimed the gospel. That's why those in church history proclaimed the gospel. People say, oh, you believe in the doctrines of grace, you're not going to evangelize. Well, look at church history in America. We consider George Whitfield, we consider Jonathan Edwards and others. They held to the doctrines of grace. They believed in particular redemption. The Puritans, those who were God used in mighty ways for the great awakening in this country, and not far from here. And they held to these doctrines that I'm speaking of, that we say we hold to. So don't ever let anyone tell you that you're a, if you're a Calvinist, if you want to use that word, or Reformed, oh, you, then you don't believe in evangelism. All are invited by the gospel invitation. You must be born again. That's what Jesus says in John chapter 3. That's what Whitfield preached not far from here. Remember the, the, the person asked him the question, why do you keep saying you must be born again? And what was his answer? Because you must be born again. One must repent. One must place their faith in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. That is the responsibility. Evangelizing yesterday. 
and praise God, over a thousand tracks over the last two weekends went out to people with the few of us that were out there last two weekends. But I handed a track to a man and he looked at it for a while and he, turned, he looked at it, he smiled, he gave it back to me. He says, oh, I'm a Christian already. And I said, great, here's an idea. And I didn't say it this way. Why don't you give that to someone else? And he, I looked, I said, hey, yeah, you're a Christian already. Why don't you give that to somebody? And he looked at me and he was like, that's the greatest idea he's ever heard in his life. Wow, I'm a Christian, I'm actually going to take this and I'm going to give it to someone who's lost. It's like he's never heard of it. He's like, I'm all set, in other words. We are to proclaim Christ to all men. Matthew 28, 19. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, says the Lord. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Yet... This is my yet, not yet in, in, this, in the word of God. Yet the actual atoning sacrifice is for his people only. Those who the Father gave to the Son in eternity past covenant of redemption. If one were to say the atonement is universal, that is to say that Jesus died for, atoned for sins that are not forgiven nor will ever be forgiven. No, it's a full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. The teaching of particular redemption is throughout the Scripture, the Old Testament and the New Testament. We're going to look at two passages. We're going to go briefly to Exodus chapter 12. Let's go to Exodus chapter 12. Once you see where we are, you'll see where I'm going and what we're looking at here. I'm not going to cover all the verses here. Just going to make a few points. <clears throat> As you're turning to Exodus 12, this is the, the Passover lamb or the Passover ritual. The Passover is described as a sacrifice. It adverts God's judgment from the Israelite households. Why is that? Because the blood had been applied. Because the blood covered those within. This is linked to the death of Christ. I'll read this for us as you're still maybe turning there or you're getting focused in on it. 1 Corinthians 5, don't turn back there. I'll read it for us this morning. <clears throat> Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened. Here's the point. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. So if you write in your Bible... You want to put that verse there next to Exodus chapter 12. Christ, our sacrifice. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. Okay, so we look at some of these verses here, and most of us know the account here. We've heard this before, of what God told the people to do, what he told Moses to tell the people to do, and they were to, uh, let's just read in verse, uh, verse 4, okay? Chapter 12, Exodus. Now if the household is too small for a lamb... He and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of each person in them, according to what each man should eat, you are to divide to the lamb. So there's supposed to be a sacrifice, supposed to be blood applied. Now look at this, verse 5. Your lamb shall be unblemished, male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Okay, it's a particular sacrifice. There's that word again. 
you shall keep it until the 14th year, 14th day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight, a particular time. Verse 7, moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it, particularly applied as God says it must be done. And verse 7 through 13, you must eat, you must partake in this particular meal. Verse 12, I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Not all people, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The blood applied particularly. And then look at verse 17. You shall also observe the feast of unleavened bread. And we think John chapter 6, where we're going to next, not right now, but just in a moment. Uh, we'll see what Jesus says there. The feast of unleavened bread. And for on this very day, I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent ordinance. The bread of life. Look at verse 23, our final verse, I believe, for this chapter for us to look at. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come in to your houses to smite you. The blood applied to a particular people. And this is just one scripture. This is just a few verses. We have other Old Testament passages as well to look at, but we, do, we will not do that this morning. But each lamb for a particular group of people, only those who participated in the meal, uh, found refuge in the blood, as chapter 12 tells us. Yahweh gave instructions the people had to follow. Today, God gives instructions, repent and believe the gospel. People must say, yes, I will do that. I, I must respond to what God says. Paul Williamson says, the Passover cannot be conceived as some kind of general sacrifice that made provision for all. Rather, it is clearly portrayed as having a definite goal with a particular focus, and we would say yes and amen, the same for the cross of Jesus Christ. Now let me read this for you as we go to John chapter 6. We're going to go to John chapter 6 and verse 22. Other scripture you can look at on your own time would be Isaiah chapter 53 through 55. We'll just go through that. But this is from the other book I recommend on particular redemption, From Heaven He Came Down and Sought Her. This is a more recent book. You want to go to the Puritan, John Owen. You can read that, I believe, in the updated English, about the death and the death of the death of Christ. You read that one, and you can read uh, From Heaven He Came Down and Sought Her. That is a very exhaustive book on particular redemption, and uh, my opinion is you will be convinced uh, after reading that, if you're not convinced already. Uh, this is according to that book there. It says this, as we go to John 6. <clears throat> the Son agrees to display the glory of the Father by redeeming the people that the Father gave to him. As a result, these redeemed people will participate in the intra, intra-Trinitarian communion 
shared by the Father and the Son from all eternity. Several passages in the Johannian literature describe this agreement, but three are particularly important. He uses that word again. The first is the bread of life discourse. John chapter 6, here we are, verse 22, through, uh, we're just going to read, um, I'm going to summarize it here with some of the scriptures here. In John chapter 6. All that the Father gives to me, this is a, uh, summarizing it here. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, says the Lord, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of God my Father, that everyone who looks at the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. That was John chapter 6, verse 37 through 40, and verse 44. So, several times in this section, Jesus emphasizes that he has come down from heaven to accomplish the will of the Father. From this passage, the the plan established by the Father and the Son may be summarized as follows. First, the Father gives a specific group of people to the Son, Second, the Son comes down from heaven to do the Father's will. Third, the Father's will is for the Son to lose none of them, but raise them up on the last day. Fourth, these people come to the Son by looking on Him to believe. Fifth, the Son gives them eternal life. Sixth, the Son will raise them on the last day. And seventh, no one can come to the Son unless the Father who sent, sent the Son draws him. Okay, so if we consider John 6, verse 37 through 44, the Father gives a particular uh, specific group of people to the Son for whom the Son comes to die for in order to give them eternal life. So when we consider all that and we say, what's the point? Only a Christian can say accurately, Jesus died for me. He paid for my sins and is interceding for me. And it's nothing that I did for this. Only the Christian can say that. He died for you, specifically and particularly. It wasn't because of your will or you being good enough. That should cause us to have great joy. Another scripture that teaches this doctrine um, of, of John that stands out, I'll just read this for you. It's from Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 and 10. The heavenly creatures saying the following. This is what they sang in in Revelation chapter 5. Worthy are you to take the book, to break its seals, for you were slain. Obviously speaking about Jesus. And purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. And they will reign upon the earth. Excellent uh, scriptures for us, a combination of God's glory, the death of Christ, and redemption of a particular people. He purchased a people out of every tribe, every language, every people, and every nation. 
Jesus lived, died, rose again, ascended on high, and intercedes for a particular people. Who? The church. His people, the sheep, children of God. And he prays specifically, not for the world, but for those whom the Father has given him. And we see other texts. I'll just read these for you as well. 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6, there is one, me- one God, one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Yeah, Romans 8, 34, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus, it is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who, has the right hand of, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us, for his people. This clearly shows the doctrine of election and particular redemption. Just as in the Old Testament, the sacrifices were for uh, the atonement of the sins of God's people only, likewise the blood of Christ only atones for the sins of those given him by the Father, the elect. Therefore, he will only be the mediator for and only pray for God's people. All throughout the scripture, we see a difference between the world and those called out of the world, between the children of God and the children of the devil, or the sheep and the goats, or the wheat and the chaff. And this really crushes the Western Christianity that preaches God just loves everyone. God loves everyone the same way. Or God has a wonderful plan for your life. Or Jesus' blood was intended to atone for the sins of every person. No, he prays for and he died for a people. Secondly, second point, proving to be glorified in his people. Proving to be glorified in his people. Verse 10, and all things that are mine are yours and yours are mine and I have been glorified in them. Consider this statement. If someone were to say this, all things that are mine are yours. That sounds nice, doesn't it? Hey, everything that I own, everything that's mine is yours. But then they say all of your things are mine. So it sounds good until they say the second part. But when we think about this as Jesus meant it here, this is a special relationship, a special bond. Luther says, this no creature can say with reference to God. I have been glorified in them, he says. Jesus was glorified in these disciples. He says this right here. Because salvation is of him by his grace. Because he calls the disciples as he calls us to be holy. And when we walk in his ways before a lost and dying world, we bring glory to God, we ascribe glory to God. It is God who gets the glory. He calls us to proclaim the gospel, and he is glorified in this. In our service to him, as we encourage one another, we have acts of mercy, hospitality, missions. We give glory to him in these things. When he says, all things are mine that are yours, and yours are mine, I have been glorified in them as he is praying to the Father, This, again, is another evidence of the deity of Jesus Christ. 
It is all over the place. It's evidence of the deity of Christ as well as the trinity of the triune God, three persons, one God. Scripture teaches us that God will share his glory with no man. Isaiah 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. And we put that up against that what Jesus says about himself in John 13, 31, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. And how about Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4? Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. So Christ is glorified and we ascribe glory to him. That is our our goal, right? To bring glory to God. That ought to be our aim. Whatever we are doing, whatever we are pursuing. Thirdly, protecting and preserving his people. So first we have praying for his people, Jesus praying for his people, and then proving to be glorified in his people. We just looked at that second point briefly. And then thirdly, protecting and preserving his people. Protecting and preserving his people. Verse 11. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. Jesus' departure is so close that he refers to it in the present tense. His work in the world is all but complete. He is no longer in the world. The disciples are in the world. They will remain in the world. And he prays for them, and he says, Holy Father. And this phrase, this this wording, Holy Father, is only here in the New Testament. It is a title. It is a way that Jesus refers to the Father. There is only one Holy Father, and that is God. I know sometimes in false religions and cults or Roman Catholicism, they call whoever it is Holy Father. They should never do such a thing. It's blasphemous. It's ridiculous. Don't get me started on it. I even, when I worked hospice, I'll, I'll start on it. There was a nice man, nice man who was a, a priest, or he was a Roman Catholic guy. With the, he must have been a priest. Nice guy, his name was Bob. He was a smoker, too, by the way, which I always try to, I didn't know how that worked, but anyway, nice man, but everyone called him Father Bob, and when I was a Christian, I couldn't do it. I couldn't call him Father anyone. I was kind to him, nice to him, and conversation. I just didn't, I just didn't call him anything. I just said, hello, sir, or these kind of things. I couldn't do it. Because he is no mediator. Only Christ is. Holy Father, and this is similar to 1 Peter chapter 1, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all of your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And here in 17 is a reminder to the disciples that God is holy and that he is also Father. Keep them in your name or guard them. Why? Why would they need protection? Well, he's leaving the world. Jesus was leaving the world 
He was going to the cross, and they are staying behind. There's an urgency in this request. Keep them. Guard them. By the power of your name, O Father. As we're reminded from Psalm 20 and verse 1, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the Lord, the God of Jacob, set you securely on high. There's external and internal protection that is needed. Or, Or... Psalm 54, verse 1, Save me, O God, by your name, and vindicate me by your power. And we know Proverbs 18, verse 10, I believe it is, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. Jesus prays that that the Father would guard them, that he would keep them for this time. And as I study this and it seems that the particular time that he's asking for this is the time when he went to the cross. It seems that way. He prays that they may be one, even as we are. Look at that at the end of verse 11. That they may be one even as we are. Oneness of will and spirit the unity of the Trinity being our model. Can you imagine that? This unity that that the triune God has. As they're continually being one together is his prayer. This is not speaking of one world religion or one denomination. We have theological discussions and differences, and that's not the point here. Oftentimes when people disagree theologically on something, they say, oh, we just all want to be one and unified. I do not believe that's what the Lord is talking about here. But a unity and closeness of the Spirit. Remember Luke 22, verse 24, I'll just read it for you. A dispute among them arose as to which one of them was regarded to be greatest. The disciples were ready to come to blows. These were guys who spent day in and day out with one another, and they were arguing over who was going to be greatest. They did not have unity at that time. They were not discussing who should be baptized and who should not. They did not discuss uh, eschatology, are you post-mill, all-mill, or historic pre-mill, or what? They were not unified as they ought to be. Now, theology is important, absolutely. Doctrinal distinctives are important, absolutely. We need to land somewhere on all aspects of theology. But I do not believe that's what the Lord means here. I think what he means here is also very important, loving one another. Having union in Christ, we all do together that are Christians here. We all can say, well, I have union in Christ. I have union with Christ. He has saved me. But unity in Christ takes cultivation, doesn't it? Forgetting theological differences, just for a moment. I know I said it, I can't believe it, but just for a moment, if you consider the differences in uh, whatever it may be. But what else is very important is loving and caring for one another. Consider how we treat one another. How do we treat one another? Do we just treat our close pals within, within this church a certain way? Those who we know? Oh, I've known you for seven years, and this is great, and You know, we hang out all the time. Great. What about everybody else? 
Are we loving to everyone? Not just those who are close to us, but the rest of the people within a local church. Let's use that context. Do we love only Christians just like us? Oh, wow, you know, here we are. We have two kids, and they have two kids. If you have two kids, I'm not talking about you. Just use an example, please. We have two kids, and they have two kids, and we're only going to hang out with them now. I mean, we understand why they would. We understand that, right? Kids growing up together, great, and the world's crazy out there. But what about the widow? Are we hanging out with the widows, too? What about the Christian whose spouse is not a believer? What about those who are single? What about those who used to practice a sexual way that makes you very uncomfortable? But they're redeemed. Christians, we have been chosen by the Father from all eternity, and we are in this together. Let us always live like it and love like it. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Christ has been entrusted, if you will, by the Father for our salvation. We belong to the Father, given to the Son, and Jesus cares for us, intercedes for us. He died for us. Therefore, brother and sister in Christ, let us consider how we should treat our fellow brethren. God loves them just as he has loved you. Christ died for them just as he has died for you. Shouldn't we love one another as well? Intercede for one another by praying for one another as well and sacrifice for one another? So there, there is the external protection and the internal protection. The external protection, he prays to protect them from the world. Right? We all need that type of protection. But the internal protection as well. Within a local church. Let's go to 2 Timothy. I forgot to tell you where we're going there as well, but now I'm telling you. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. <clears throat> I mean, consider this. All of us within a local church, what could possibly go wrong? Christ prays for unity. We must pray and cultivate unity within the body. Unity of spirit together. And we know the isolated Christian is really an oxymoron. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14 through following here. Just follow along with me. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. You know what gangrene is? As it spreads and it causes division and it causes harm and it plagues 
let our talk not be like that with each other. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place and they have set faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, brothers and sisters, knowing that they produce quarrels. Let there not be quarrels among us. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And there again, we see God is the one who grants repentance. And they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Specifically there, here this is for someone who teaches the word of God, but it is so applicatory and so for all of us as believers. Protecting and preserving, continued verse 12 of John. Let's go back to John 17. Jesus prays for external protection and internal protection. Sometimes, uh, rather than outside in the world, sometimes the uh, biggest fights can come within uh, a church. I hear some mm mm-hmm's. Someone's been there, done that, unfortunately has that T-shirt. Verse 12, John 17. Protecting and preserving, continued. While I was with them, Jesus says, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Okay, a lot here. While I was with them, Jesus says, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished. That is perseverance of the saints all day long, right there. Jesus is saying he was guarding them, he was keeping them in God's powerful, manifested name to them. Not one of them perished. Jesus kept them so they would persevere. Jesus asks the Father to keep them, they will persevere. A true believer must persevere, a true believer will persevere. Must persevere and will persevere. They are kept in his name will not fall away. They will stay true to him and they will follow him. Matthew Henry paraphrases what the Lord says. He says this, keep them in the knowledge and fear of your name. Keep them in the profession and service of your name, whatever it costs them. Keep them in the interest of your name and let them be ever faithful. Keep them in thy faith. And many of us know that it will cost you to keep your hand to the plow. 
but it'll cost you much greater to look back to the world. Remember Lot's wife. Only one perished, the son of perdition, or the son of destruction, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Well, what scripture? Well, Psalm 41, verse 9, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, he has lifted up his heel against me. This son of destruction, he never belonged to Christ. Just as there are many false professing Christians, false followers of Jesus Christ today who do not belong to Jesus. Judas was ordained to destruction. Although the main focus here, and as we look through, as we study through John, seems to be on his character. Those who are ordained to eternal life will continue on. Philippians 1 and verse 6, He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's why we continue on is because of what God does in sanctification. It's him that works in us. Judas, the son of destruction or the son of perdition, Leon Morris puts it this way. He says that this expression means that he was characterized by lostness. You know how we say that sometimes? That person is just so lost. Wow. Well, I used to be so lost too. So did you. He says, the disciples need not fear, for Jesus had kept them so that none of them was lost. Judas was responsible. God used that evil to bring about his purpose. Fourthly, providing joy in his people. Providing joy in his people. Verse 13. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. There's one word there that really stuck out to me. Hopefully it sticks out to you. My. The word my. Not just any old joy, but my joy, says the Lord. We indeed should be a people who rejoice a people filled with the joy of the Lord. This does not mean we are always happy and running around, clicking our heels. Well, we don't want to do that in church anyway, but at least not in this church, but doesn't mean we're always talking about clicking the heels, not being happy. We should be happy, but but that doesn't mean we're always happy. I mean, some of us come in here sulking, do we not? Some of us wake up. I mean, how many cups of coffee do I need before you can talk to me? Someone can relate over there. But we should be a people who rejoice. Consider some words from Jerry Bridges here. He says this, To be joyless is to dishonor God and to deny his love and his control over our lives. He says this, it gets gets better or worse depending on how you want to hear it. It is practical atheism. To be joyful is to experience the power of the Holy Spirit within us and to say to a watching world, our God reigns. Practical atheism, living as if God is not in control, living as if God is not sovereign, 
living as if God is not working out all these things for his glory and your good. Sometimes that's hard to swallow. That's because of who we are as people. The word of God stands. And this joy that he speaks of, my joy, as he says, is a joy that we cannot find in the world. We can only find such joy in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has redeemed us from our sin and saved us from this world. We need to be reminded that as, as Christians as well, right? I mean, sometimes we can try to find our joy that we once had or the joy that is escaping us in other things. Whatever it may be, a hobby or chocolate or whatever. Joy in Jesus, our high priest who died for us and intercedes for us. What kind of joy? He says, my joy. And how can we have this kind of joy? The answer is close communion with Christ in his word and in prayer. In his word and in prayer. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 tells us, we are fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Think of that. The joy set before him, he endured the cross. His joy allows us to share this joy with others. And just practically speaking, when we're downcast and we're, we're feeling like just the whole world is closing in or we feel like we're just useless times we can be but just feeling that way serve someone else it gets the focus off of yourself but his joy allows us to share his this joy with others praying for one another and letting people know we're praying for them also reaching the lost with the gospel of Christ 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. When Jesus lived, died, and rose, and ascended, and interceded, he did so for a particular people. The church... His people, also known as the many, his sheep, the few that be here who find it, the children of God. These are the ones that the Father gave to the Son before he came to earth. The one that God draws to himself with the effectual call and he gives them eternal life. Purchased by his blood, taken from every tribe, every language, every people group, and every nation. And everyone is responsible to answer the call of the gospel. There will be no excuses. 
when one stands before God. Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. He's the only one who can save you from your sins, the only one who can redeem you, the only one who can intercede for you. There is no one that's too far gone that he cannot save, and there is no one who is good enough that can enter heaven on his own merit. There is none good, no, not one. Someone had to intercede for you, had to step in, had to die, the righteous one for the unrighteous people. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who came to take the way away the sins of the world. For some of you in here, it may be your fourth quarter in life. Doesn't matter how old you are. You may be poised to take your last breath at any moment. I encouraged, as I was out witnessing three young ladies, I don't know how old they were, maybe 12, and they were listening attentively. I encouraged them in what they were doing with their bake sale and stuff, saying that's a great thing you're doing. But what's more important is your eternity. And young people die every single day. I encourage them to read the track to place their faith and trust in Jesus. Jesus prays for his people. We also must pray for his people. Isn't that encouraging when someone is sick or someone's laid up and people pray for you? Jesus is glorified in his people. We ought to live to glorify the Lord. God, how may I glorify in you, you in this? How may I ascribe glory to you in this, O oh God? I don't want this to be of me, Lord. I want it to be of you. Help me to do that, Lord. Help me to cultivate that heart. Protecting and preserving his people, God's sovereign grace protects his own. A once-for-all sacrifice, full atonement. Christ died for the ungodly. And practically speaking, protecting and preserving, you have overseers who are to protect you from wolves, and we are to protect one another from wolves as well. Providing joy in his people, we have the joy of Christ only by being in Christ. We need to cultivate that joy, close communion with the Lord in prayer and in his word, and we spread this joy with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we share this joy to lost people as well. I end with this from Robert Murray McShane. He says this, listen to this, please, of praying for his people. He says, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet, distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this time you have given us this day. Help us to heed your word, to apply these things to our lives. Thank you, God, that everyone in here who is a child of God, who has been born again, can say, Jesus died for my sins. 
and that Jesus loves me so and I am precious in his sight and I have eternal life and no one in this world or nothing can take that from me. And for those in here, Lord, who do not know you, God, we pray that you would give them restlessness in their soul right now. And they would cry out to Christ to save them before it's too late. In Jesus' name.